Please turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. In Titus chapter 2, our text this morning will be verses 11 to 15 to finish out the chapter. We started off this particular section last week, and we had looked at how the Apostle Paul is giving instruction to the church that's in Crete. So far within the, the entire letter, he has given a number of warnings on what to watch out for, how to establish pastors within the church, the characteristics that must be there, which is in contrast to what you find within the city of Crete and what they're known by as far as their debaucherous uh, reputation. Those who are pastors are to have certain characteristics that he lays out before us. Not only with pastors, but in another epistle, of course, in Timothy, he references those who are to be deacons as well. In our text last week, he began giving instructions for the church members themselves. And really, when you're looking at Titus, you're looking at what does a healthy church look like? What is a church that is committed to Christ? What does it look like? And so he began to speak to the, the older men and how they must be dignified and self-controlled, and they must teach the younger men with the older women, how they are supposed to be as well in their conduct and in their speech, and how they are to teach the younger women to love their, their husbands, love their children, be devoted to Christ. He gave instructions to Timothy himself. In the earlier part of chapter 2, and in, in, <clears throat> and in the latter verses there, And we looked at as well how he even gives instructions on slaves to their masters. He really addresses all all the the, the social constructs in the the day. The men, the women, the slaves, the masters, the pastors. He's, He's addressing everyone. That wherever we find ourselves, that there is a way in which God has commanded us to conduct ourselves. There's a manner in which we should live. That God is glorified in our lives and that we do not bring reproach upon Christ. Because not only in the days of Titus, but also in our own day, we can look, we can see examples of this everywhere. We recognize this reality that cheap grace, the teaching of cheap grace manifests itself in shallow commitment to Christ and a life lived in licentiousness. This is what, Tim, what Titus is is addressing here, what Titus is being addressed with. That there are those Cretans who are in the church who are empty talkers, they're rebellious, they're deceivers, they're upsetting households, and yet they're professing to be within the faith. And to propagate that kind of a teaching is nothing more than cheap grace. A cheap grace that does nothing in order to deliver. Deliver the person out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. It produces shallow commitment to Christ. But other things that Titus is addressing here or that Titus is being confronted with is also those who are on the legalist side who would say that the grace of God is insufficient. And this insufficient life or this insufficient grace leads to a life of trying to work our way continually into the favor of God. 
And actually, when you think of that kind of a life in which you, you have no assurance of whether or not you're really in the faith or out of the faith because you base yourself, uh, whether being in or out, on your own conduct. Surely God's grace is not sufficient enough to cover me, so I must come up with a number of other things in my life that I can do and earn God's favor. Surely he is pleased with, with all my checklist here. That is just acknowledging that you believe that God's grace is insufficient to save you and save you to the utmost. But what the Apostle Paul is then writing to Titus here in these verses of what we're going over today is so rich, so wonderful, so encouraging, so comforting. Because he is not talking about cheap grace. He's not talking about insufficient grace. He's talking about costly grace. And that costly grace is sufficient to save to the utmost. And this costly grace gives us freedom. Gives us freedom to live a life that is good and right in the sight of God. So really dealing with the question, is godliness necessary for believers? Is it a necessary characteristic of those who are children of God? And the answer to that is, yes, it is. But in answering that, you have to also answer the question, well, since it is necessary, how does it come about? What is the means or what is the foundation of our godly living? Is it resting on us to read the instructions given within God's word and to continuously labor to put it into practice? Or is it dependent upon God to bring about that change in us? Is it in our power? Is it in his power? Because when it comes to this very topic of sanctification... We acknowledge readily that justification is a pure act of God and of God alone. He is the one who declares any to be righteous. It's, it's all him. Salvation as a whole is all God. You can claim nothing, no part of it. So if salvation as a whole is a work of God and God alone, one aspect of salvation being your justification is a work of God and God alone. When you look at your glorification, the final consummation of your salvation, it's a work of God and God alone. Why then do we think sanctification is a work of God in ourself? Why do we see this aspect of, of, of our salvation as being synergistic, meaning that we're both working rather than a monergistic work of God, just as our justification is, just as our glorification is. If we see sanctification as a work of ourselves included, that it is dependent upon us, then this brings about a great burden within our own life. And it leads to great anxiety because we find ourselves committing sin, we find ourselves messing up, it, it creates uh, a joyless life because we can't take joy in what God is doing because we're so much looking at ourselves. What Paul is addressing here is that, yes, godliness is necessary for believers. In all those instructions that he gave in verses 1 through 10, he's saying this is what you must do. This is what this looks like. This is how the older men are be, the older women, the younger men, the younger women. Slaves, this is how you are to be. Now, 
In our verses, Paul is going to give the foundation on which to build those commands, on which he builds those commands. This is the instruction of, of, this is the theological foundation, the theological basis for everything that Paul said prior to this. And you cannot, you cannot just chalk it up to let go and let God. We We recognize that. This isn't a, a, a situation in which we recognize that God is, is the one who is working in our sanctification, and so we do nothing. It is so amazing, the, the mystery of how all this is intertwined, of how God works within us, and, and we work out what he does on the inside. But it is necessary. Sanctification is necessary. Because the costly grace that is bestowed upon us in Christ has not only delivered us from the judgment of God, but it has also delivered us from the dominion of sin. And to live a life that is contrary to the gospel, contrary to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that is a life of having no salvation. And this is an issue, again, that has been throughout the, the church uh, since its founding. You have those on the one hand who are the legalists, those on the other who are now, the antinomians are those who are against the law, who think there is no law, there is no standard. Calvin himself had to uh, deal with this uh, also in Geneva. Uh, one writer was saying that in the fall of 1553, John Calvin faced a crisis during his tenure as pastor in the Swiss city of Geneva in what is known as the Libertine Affair. Calvin was assailed by ungodly Genevans who demanded acceptance in the church these libertines openly embraced a love of debauchery, especially sexual indulgence, which had resulted in the barring of their leader from the Lord's table in Calvin's church. Appealing to the civil authorities, they secured an order for Calvin to accept them when communion was next served. The showdown took place on September 3rd, when the leading libertines appeared and demanded to receive the sacrament. Calvin, though threatened with violence, draped his body in front of the Lord's table, here's what he says. These hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off. My life you may take, my blood is yours, you may shed it. But you shall never force me to give holy things to the profaned and dishonor the Lord's table. Calvin had to deal with this sort of thing in Geneva when it came to the antinomians. And those who lived a life of licentiousness and debauchery. And he guarded the Lord's table because the Lord's table is a recognition that Christ has delivered you from such a life. And that's what we're looking at. Not only has he delivered you from judgment, but he has delivered you from the power and dominion of sin. And that's where the Apostle Paul is coming in with these wonderful words. Giving us a theological basis for how we ought to live and why we should live. And what is the means by which this is carried out in our life. It is possible to do so, but the theological basis for living righteously is founded upon the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Totally grounded in Christ and the grace that is found in him. He not only delivers us from wrath, but he delivers us from the power of sin. So today we're looking at this grace, this costly grace. How this grace first man was first manifested how this grace works within our life. How costly was this grace 
and that this is the message that needs to be preached, uh, not only to ourselves in our time of trial, but it needs to be preached to all. This is the kind of grace that works in the life of believers. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Titus chapter 2, beginning of verse 11. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for this grace that we are looking at today, this grace that works within our life. Thank you so much for the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for not only him delivering us from your wrath, but perching us out of the world of sin and making us his own. Father, I pray that you bless the preaching of your word. May it accomplish all you desire in us, and may our hearts be greatly encouraged by what we are going over today. May the Spirit of God apply it to our hearts and give us great joy. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. So here we're getting the theological basis. For living a righteous life, for living a life of godliness. And we know, of course, that it is tied to the previous section of everything that Paul's been going over. Uh, to, the, to the men, to the women, to the slaves, this is how you ought to live. This is what is pleasing to the Lord to live in such a way. And then he says, for the grace of God has appeared. So in light of everything that he just said, he is connecting it and he is saying that the reason that you can live this way, the reason that you are enabled to live this way, is that the grace of God has appeared. This is why. And so it is, of course, connected to the previous section. Here's his basis for giving those instructions. That the grace of God has appeared. Uh, This Greek word is where we get the word epiphany. It, it means to become manifest or gloriously visible. And what is being referred to here is that the grace of God which was manifested or appeared was the grace of God that was found in Christ Jesus. He is referring to the time in which Christ came on the scene and the grace of God appeared in him. Now this is not saying that God was not gracious within the Old Testament or under the Old Covenant. He was absolutely gracious. This is, this is, this is his character. This is part of his nature. He is gracious. And actually, one of my favorite passages of Scripture within the Old Testament that just sets the grace of God on display for us to behold 
is in Exodus chapters 32 to 34. Against the backdrop of the children of Israel breaking the law of God, God was gracious and spared their life. He was gracious and went and said to Moses that he would go with them into the promised land even though that they had rebelled against him. And then he says in Exodus chapter 33, he tells Moses what is the basis on which he will be gracious. It's not dependent upon the people. It's not dependent upon Moses even interceding for them. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And that harkens us back to how the Lord had first appeared to Moses and said to Moses, I am that I am. This is who he is. He is the existing one. And then he says in Exodus 33, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. He is saying to Moses in that passage that my grace bestowed upon them the basis on which I give it is me. I'm the standard. I'm the basis. This is what he says to Moses. And then, of course, as he passes by Moses in Exodus 34, he declares his glory to him. He declares his name, which is all characteristics of his great grace. So, yes, the Lord was gracious in the Old Testament because that is his nature. His gracious character was made known through the prophets primarily. As the prophets would speak to the people, they would, they would expound to the people the gracious nature of God and how God was being gracious even in their times of rebellion. The grace of God was known through the scripture as the scriptures were being penned within the Old Testament. But the significance of what Paul is saying here is that this grace that was mediated through the prophets or mediated through the scripture to express the very nature of God was made manifest in the God-man coming himself. This grace that he is referring to here was made visible and it was made visible through Christ Jesus taking on flesh. The Son of God became man and walked among sinners. And this grace was manifested in the life of Christ you know, we wonder, well, what does God think about you know, sinners and how would God interact with sinners? We look at Christ. How did Christ interact with sinners? He was gracious. He was even gracious to those who were in rebellion against him. He was gracious to all kinds of people uh, that we found, of course, within the Gospel of John. By Christ coming in the flesh, the visible image of the invisible God was made known to man, in which they seen him, they talked to him, and they saw his graciousness put on display in everything that he said and everything that he did. So that's where Paul's coming in saying, For the grace of God has appeared, and it appeared in Christ Jesus in its fullest manifestation. The fullest revelation of the very character and nature of God was seen in Christ. And that's where Paul is, is bringing this into. The grace of God has appeared. It's made manifest. And he says, bringing salvation to all men. Now, I just heard the other day someone say, in a different passage of scripture, that all means all. All does not mean all. And no one believes that. If you would, hold your place here in Titus, and let me give you an example. In Romans chapter 5, 
Just one verse. There are many others, but let's just look at one. In Romans chapter 5, look at verse 18. So the Apostle Paul says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, are we universalists? Do we believe that all people, regardless of who they are, are going to be justified in the sight of God? No, we don't believe that. Because we recognize, according to the scripture, that there are going to be those who take the broad road and who will endure the very wrath of God in hell. We know that. So this particular passage has to be qualified, does it not? We recognize that in the first half of it that there resulted condemnation to all men. We know that that is speaking universally of all mankind because there are other passages of Scripture that also shed light on that. That there are none righteous, no, not one. There are none who seek after God. All have turned aside and have gone astray. Uh, we, We recognize this. All mankind is in sin. So then, when we're looking at the second half of this, we recognize that only those who are in Christ, only those who believe are those who will be justified. And so the word all has to be qualified by its context and what we understand to be from the rest of Scripture. So when we're looking back then at Titus, and Titus makes this statement, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, what does he mean by that? Well, he just got done talking about uh, these, these various classes of men. Men and women. Uh, you, you got men, women, slaves, masters. Uh, he's talking about, just as he does in his epistle to Timothy, that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all kinds of men. Because that's the context. That's the flow. He talks about older men, younger men. Older women, younger women. Slaves, masters. He's talking about all kinds, all genders, all classes, all ages. This is who he has in mind. The grace of God has appeared, and God is no um, respecter of persons in the sense that he does not show partiality to any particular class or any particular age or any particular gender, that he is the, the savior of all kinds of men, speaking generally of all mankind. And this is what is in view, that there is this grace of God that is appearing not just to one particular group in the sense of a class or gender or age, but all kinds. And so this grace that he is referring to is hearkening back to what he just said. The grace of God appeared to you, older men, to you, older women, to you, younger men, to you, younger women, to you, slaves. The grace of God appeared fully manifest in Christ. And because you have been delivered from judgment, you have also been delivered from the dominion of sin that you may live the life that I just spoke to you about. This grace... Again, not only delivers from judgment, but it delivers from the dominion of sin. One writer says, grace breaks upon our moral darkness like the rising sun. This grace instructs us to deny ungodliness. Instructing is the word here. And it's not the common word that is used within the New Testament to to speak of teaching, which is uh, the Greek word didasko. Uh, This is 
This is a different word. This is the, the Greek word paduo, uh, which is a word that carries the meaning of having education or guidance or discipline that is associated with parental oversight. That's the word that's being used. William Hendrickson says this <clears throat> about this word. This same stem, uh, this is the same stem as is the noun pedagogue. A pedagogue who is a teacher, or edu educator, or schoolmaster, leads children step by step. Thus, grace too gently leads and guides. It does not throw things into confusion. It does not suddenly and forcefully upset the social order. For example, I thought this is a really good example. It does not abruptly order masters to free their slaves, nor does it unwisely command slaves to rebel forthwith against their masters. On the contrary, it gradually causes masters to see that the encroachment upon the liberty of their fellow of their fellows is a great wrong, and it convinces slaves that resort to force and vengeance that this is not the solution to every problem. And so sometimes we look back in history, how can this be? Why, why, does, uh, why do Christians own slaves, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? And what you can look at is the, what is being taught to us here in this, this section of God's Word is that the instruction that we receive by this grace of God that is working within us on account of the righteousness of Christ, on account of what He accomplished in this world, it's working in us, and it is a gradual process. And this is exactly what we talk about when we talk about sanctification. We talk about sanctification having two parts, which is referred to as definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. Definitive sanctification is that the chains of sin have been broken immediately upon your conversion. Because the Holy Spirit of God is invaded in, into your heart and he has broken the chains. You have a new master. You have new desires. You have a new nature. You have a new heart. All of this language that's used within the scripture. And so then the dominion of sin is broken. Its mastery over you is no longer. That's what Paul says in Romans 6. But then we recognize that there is that progressive sanctification. This progressive sanctification is God working continually in us to shape us and to mold us throughout our life here on earth. To make us more alive to the spirit, more dead to the flesh. And we recognize that this process is throughout our life and it will never be perfected in this life. And so this word that's being used here to convey this instruction that is, giving, that is given to us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age is a process. It is God continually working within us. That's where the Apostle Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And this is important for us to recognize. This is important for you to understand as well as it is for me. Because we can be so frustrated with our own selves because we're not where we think that we should be. We get so frustrated with ourselves because we fall into the same sin that, that we have previously. Why can't I overcome this? Why do I think these things? Why do I keep saying these things? How is it that my, my temper or whatever it is can get the best of me at times? How is it that this sin... Can, can invade in my life when I least expect it. And so we get very frustrated with ourselves. We get very down on ourselves. But this is where we have to go back and remember this, that God is working in us. He is working in you. You are not the same as, once, as the way you once were. And this is, this, is the, this is the encouragement 
That as you look over your life and you think to yourself, how, how can I still be here? It's because God's grace disciplines us gradually. It is a process. So don't be so discouraged, dear friends. Don't be so um, despairing. Because if we can look back at where we began, we can see that God's grace has been intimately involved in our life and the Spirit of God has continually changed us and shaped us and molded us to be where we're at now. And that is evidence that God is working in us. And you have to come to this understanding that this, that this process will never be perfected in this life no matter how much you want it to be. This, is, this reminds me a lot of what Jason has told us in the past that one of the wonderful things of heaven that he's looking forward to besides being able to, to see Christ and to worship Christ is to experience what it's like not to sin. To experience what it's like not to struggle with sin. And there will be that day. But the instruction of this age that we live in, is it's a gradual instructing, it's a gradual teaching, as, as again, within the parental sense, as God is gradually shaping us and mold us, just like we do our own children. We don't just... As soon as our children are able to speak and able to understand what we're saying, we don't just give them a big list and read it off to them. This is what you ought to be doing. And we're giving them the instructions for the entirety of their life. This is how you need to act. Okay. Yeah, I know you're five, but when you, when you get a job, okay, you need, to, you need to be this way to your employer. Okay. And then when you get a spouse, this is how you need to be too. We don't do that. We don't give them a big long list, you know, when just as soon as they can understand. We gradually bring them along. In every period of their life, they receive more instruction. And as they further along, they receive more instruction. As they further along, they receive more instruction. And that's, that's the idea that's being conveyed to us here in this passage is how God works within the lives of believers. There is that gradual bringing us along and continually teaching us. Now, this particular change that is done in, in living righteously and sensibly and, and godly, how does it come about? Is it dependent upon you? And the answer to that is no. It is not. Again, because sanctification is a monergistic work of God. He's the one who is working. Not you. And not me. We work out what he works within us. It is by God's power that we repent. This, you know, if you just think about the initial beginnings of salvation, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, all of that kind of language, and it is God who, who makes us alive. It is God who gives us the new heart that we may call upon Christ in faith. It is God that works within our hearts that we desire to repent. If it is God who is at work in us in the initial beginnings of our salvation that, that brings about this desire to repent, 
Then why is it that we think that the rest of our time living on this earth, that, that it's all dependent upon us? Why would we think that? It is by God's power in us, working in us, that we continually repent of our sins and that we forsake ungodliness and worldly passions. It's by His working in us. And this working of God by the Spirit of God is absolutely in conjunction with His Word. You can't go sit in a corner and just think that your your sanctification is going to continually grow without being in the Word of God because the Spirit of God works in conjunction with with the Scripture that He inspired. We know that. So there's a continual seeking after the, the knowledge of God and the understanding of things. And as we come to those understandings and we come to that underst- you know, the, the conclusion of whatever doctrine or whatever, the Spirit of God is using that and He is working that in us and He is allowing us to behold the majesty of Christ even more, which cultivates in us a greater desire for it. One writer says that... This grace does not produce perfection in this life, but it does decisively change the direction of the sinner's life. And that's where you and I can look and see how God changed the direction of our lives. From what we once were to what we are now. And are we where we need to be? No. But he has pointed us in the right direction. And the day will come when he will fully Sanctify us. But in the time of this present age, as he says here in verse 11, bringing salvation all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. This is important to, to uh, remind ourselves. Um, when you look in Scripture, I mean, you only have this age and the age to come. And so when we're looking at this passage and, and how God is instructing us and bringing us along to live sensibly and righteously in this present age, it's also talking about this period of history that we find ourselves in. If you look back in what Titus is enduring, and he's, he's in Crete, you have this reputation that is among the Cretans, that they're lazy and gluttonous and all of this that he says earlier, evil beasts. And then you have the believers that are living among them. Now, the believers in that day probably looked out and said, we live, we live in such a vile day. Look how vile these people are. Look at how much they're in rebellion against, against the Lord and against His law. But Paul says to them that this grace of God that has appeared in Christ, this grace of God that is working in us by the Spirit of God, that it's even causing them in that day to be able and able uh, to live righteously and godly in that present age. That there is no period of history, regardless of what is going on in that time, that will ever, ever be able to overcome believers that they will not be able to live righteously and sensibly before the Lord. So no matter what goes on out there, no matter all the debaucherous things that we see, or hereof, God has enabled us by His Spirit to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. Our time. Because this is true of all believers. How do we do that? Well, we must do it within the power of God. 
We must do it by praying unto the Lord and asking the Lord to help us because we can't do it in our own power. And one thing that's going to help us is as we've been going over in Ecclesiastes is to stop looking in the past and thinking how wonderful it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago and saying, if only things would be the way they were then. Because as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, when you say this, you don't say this out of wisdom. You're saying this because you lack patience for this present age. And patience is the very thing that we should have. That's what Solomon is saying. That's what the passages passages of Scripture express to us. It's having patience to endure. And when we say things like that, we just show that we don't have patience with our present time because we're living in the past. God has enabled you, dear friends, to live righteously in this present age regardless of what is going on. He doesn't just deliver us from judgment and say, okay, now you're on your own. No, He preserves us in His hand and He continually works within us. Enabling us by His Spirit to carry out what He commands. And to live in light of the gospel. To live in the truth of the gospel. One writer says that this phrase that we're reading here is written to highlight God's intention of administering His grace so that practical living takes on a distinctly gospel-generated and Christ-like character. So this grace that has been manifested is grace that instructs us. It is grace that preserves us. It is a grace that works within us longing for the day in which Christ will come. He says, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That as God is working within us, God is changing us, God is bringing us along and instructing us through His Word, That this grace produces a longing for Christ's return, which is our blessed hope. Because it's then that all will be made right. Hendrickson says, the grace of God trains us in order that we may live consecrated lives while we are waiting for the blessed hope. Notice he says, we're looking for the blessed hope. We're looking for it. We're waiting for it. That as God has worked within us. Despite how long Christ uh, tarries as far as his coming. And really and truly, here's what we have confidence in. We have confidence in knowing that Christ will return. This is what we know. We have, this is, this is our hope. This isn't a hope of, well, I hope that this works out or I hope that that works out. We know that this is a solid hope. It's a sure hope, a steadfast hope, an anchor for the soul, as the writer of Hebrews says. We don't know how long he's going to tarry, though. Every generation seems to think that he's going to come next year or in a few months. Well, because of this going on, surely Christ's return is near. Because of whatever we're reading in the paper, hearing on the news, we don't know when he's coming. But our hope is set that he will come. Some have even 
uh, you know, their particular view is that we're 2,000 years out from the time of our Lord Jesus, and their view is we could still be in the early church. He may tarry for another 3,000 years. We don't know. But what we do know, as Richard had pointed out one time, regardless of when it is that Christ comes back, I can be pretty well assured that in the next 50 to 60 years, I'm going to have my day of the Lord. So we know that. And so in the time in which we are waiting until the Lord calls us home, he has enabled us to live righteously, sensibly, and longing for the day in which he will return and set all things right. Just as you find the, the believers uh, that are under the altar, the souls of those who had been martyred, crying out to the Lord, how long are you going to wait? They're in the intermediate state. How long are you going to wait? Because there is that sense and that longing of, of setting things right. And that's what, we're, that's what we're longing for. That's where God working within us and producing those desires in us to live righteously and to long for the day in which all will be made right. And it's the grace of God that was bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus which causes all of this change to be in us. Grace appeared in the incarnation as Paul points out here. And at the consummation of all things, God's gracious work will be fully manifested. And all will be made right by Christ, who is our great God and Savior, a direct reference to the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Just as a little footnote on that, though, depending on what commentator that you're reading, there's a difference uh, among some commentators thinking that maybe two are in view as far as being God the Father and the Savior Christ Jesus, so it's not necessarily a direct reference to Christ being our great God. Um, But as we look at the rest of the scripture, we recognize that it is only Christ himself who is appearing and coming back because that was the promise. And so as he is referring to his coming, his his parousia, we're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. And so it is very in line with the context that only one is in view, which is Christ Jesus. And this is a direct reference to his deity that he is our great God and Savior. We wait for that day. We long for it. Redemption itself, uh, the redemption of, of the world. This is what we, we long to see. And as Paul says in Romans 8, even, even creation is groaning, waiting for its redemption. This is the grace that was manifested. And as we talked at the beginning, uh, this is costly grace. This isn't a cheap grace. He says, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous of good works. This is, this is the high cost of the grace of God being bestowed upon us. It was because the Lord Jesus. It's because he gave himself. As we've talked about a number of times, Christ was not a victim. 
Christ didn't have a particular plan in mind, and then all of a sudden it was upset because the Romans were able to, to snag him because of the Jewish leaders and then put him to death. Nothing like that. Christ came into the world to die, to give his life a ransom for many, to lay his life down for the sheep, to lay his life down for the church. He lays down his life. That is the reality of what we find within the scripture. This hope that we have, this working of God in us, was all based upon Christ's work. And again, here's what Paul keeps bringing us back to. That the grace of God that was found within Christ Jesus because of his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, his work as our mediator, the complete work of our Lord Jesus Christ did not just deliver us from God's wrath. Now he gave himself and endured the very wrath of God that the justice of God will be satisfied against us. And that is absolutely true. That's, that's at the heart of the gospel. That our sins are paid for and his righteousness is accredited to us as if we had done the keeping of the law and all that. But what does he keep bringing us back to? He keeps bringing us back to that he gave himself for us to redeem us. Now this word for redeem is not the uh, typical word for redeem of what we would understand, that, uh, that word exagorazo, which is the idea of payment. This is a different word. This is a different word. This verb uh, to redeem is uh, lutrao. And here's what this writer says about this particular word, which gives us a bit of an insight as, as to how it's being used here. He said, what is standing out in this word is the idea of redeeming from slavery... And the example that he gives is Luke chapter 24, verse 21. He says, The historical background of redemption from slavery in the Exodus and from political subjugation in the return from the Babylonian exile stands out in Luke chapter 24, verse 21, where the two on the road to Emmaus expressed the hope that Jesus would have redeemed Israel from political subjugation from Rome. This is the kind of word that's being used here. Not necessarily the, the, the payment uh, word that is used for redeem, although this word does have one example of that, which is in 1 Peter, in which Peter says you weren't redeemed by, by gold or silver, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. That's the only time this word is used in reference to payment. But generally speaking, this word is used in this kind of a reverence, to deliver from, from slavery, from political subjugation. And that's how it's being used here. That Christ gave himself, he endured the very wrath of his father, he paid for our sins, he was our substitute in order to redeem us, to redeem us from every lawless deed. So look at it in this way, under the oppression of sin, under the slavery of sin, under the power of sin, under the authority and control of sin, and Christ has redeemed us from it. It keeps coming back to this reality that he has delivered you from this. He's delivered you from the power of sin. This would have been, uh, of course, a great encouragement and comfort to those who are in Crete. As Titus is receiving these, these letters uh, from Paul. And he's reading them to the congregation. And he's, he's saying this very thing. That even though we live among this kind of a people. Who are lazy gluttons and evil beasts and drunkards and all of this. This is our reputation. 
that the grace of God that appeared in Christ Jesus has redeemed you from this slavery to sin so that we don't live as they do because of the grace of God in us. And it's the same for us. This message should be very encouraging to us, knowing that he did not just remove the judgment from us and leave us in darkness, defend for ourselves. We were awakened to the reality of who God was, who God is, what it is that Christ has accomplished on behalf of sinners like us, and that he has taken us from our our lowly state of being enemies of God and rebels and sinners, and he has then delivered us from the power of sin and the oppression of sin and the slavery of sin, and he has made us to be children of God, being delivered from it with a new master, which is Christ Jesus. He gave himself to redeem us. He gave himself to purify us, which is to cleanse us, to make us spiritually clean and morally, uh, morally clean is the idea there. Uh, that, uh, that same idea is used in James chapter 4, verse 8, when James says, and some of your translations may say cleanse, some may say purify, but it says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And that's the idea of being cleansed and morally cleansed. Because as Christ has redeemed us from the power of sin, from under the authority of sin, we've been born again by the Spirit of God. We've been delivered from it. The Spirit of God is working in us in this process. What is it that is happening? In the process of sanctification is what, is the, is what we've been talking about. It is that the Spirit of God is restoring back the moral image of God that was marred in the fall. That's what's happening. Because when you look at the very character of God and you see that he's altogether righteous and holy and good and kind and all of this, these, these, this, this is what it is to be created in the image of God according to his likeness. That these are the communicable attributes of God that are finding reflex within man, reflection within man. And at the fall that was marred, it was lost. And now as a result of being born again by the Spirit of God, delivered from sin and being purified by him continually through our life, the moral image of God is being restored. That's the process of sanctification. Delivered from sin. Delivered from its power. And that this new man that we have put on is being recreated in righteousness and holiness of the truth. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4. This costly work of the Lord Jesus Christ has made this a reality for all believers. No believer goes without having the, these blessings in their life. If you have been truly converted by the Lord Jesus, by the Spirit of God, then this blessing of sanctification and, and what we've been talking about is yours. You have been sanctified. Not only being set apart, seen as holy in the sight of God and all that, but in the experience of the believer, dominion of sin has been broken and the Spirit of God is working in us. This isn't cheap grace. This isn't grace that is, is just so that you can be delivered from judgment. Christ did not endure the very wrath of His Father 
in order that we may continue in the sin that he suffered so greatly for. That's why we've been delivered from its power. And we have to rest upon God and God alone to continually do the work within us. We couldn't do anything at the beginning. We depended upon Him. We can't do anything at the end. We have to depend upon Him. And in the time in between, we have to depend upon Him. That's why we pray and we ask God to to work within us and to continually work. This is the grace that needs to be preached and taught. Paul says in verse 15 that these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. Why does he say these these are the things you need to speak in view of the city in which you live and the place in which you live among the Cretans, you live among a people with this kind of reputation. Why is it that you need to preach and teach this kind of, of reality of the work of Christ and the grace that was given to you? Because one, again, Titus is having to face those who are the antinomians, who are those who are the empty talkers and the deceivers, uh, those who are uh, being rebellious, all of this, and yet being in the church. You need to preach and teach this because you have those within the church who think that, you know, just as in our own day, easy believism. I assented to the reality that, yes, Christ did these things, and so by acknowledging that, then I must be saved. And that's what easy believism was teaching, is teaching still. If you are in agreement with the facts of the gospel, the gospel message of Christ and what he did, that's all it's needed. That's all you need. You just need to be agreeable to it. Yeah, I'll agree that's true, what he did. And so for those easy believism advocates, they say, well, that person is saved because they acknowledge that. And yet they live however they want to. Titus also has to contend with the legalist. As the, <clears throat> as the Apostle Paul said in verse 10 of chapter 1, about the rebellious men, the empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Those of the circumcision who are coming into the church, perhaps the Judaizers, are those who are adding to, adding to the salvation that is in Christ. Surely, because of how I still am, because of the struggles that I still have, surely God's grace cannot be sufficient enough to save me because of what it is that I'm doing. How it is that I struggle. So I must do a number of other things, righteous deeds, in order to gain favor with God. You know, it's no wonder that there were people throughout the history of the church that would continually cause themselves pain by beating themselves or whatever, trying to to do it on their own to purge themselves or whatever sin that was in their life. When it all goes back to this, your assurance of salvation is not based upon any work that you can do, any extra works that you can do. It's based not upon your conduct. It's based upon Christ. It's, it's, it's where you have to keep going. Yes, I struggle with sin. Yes, I say things I shouldn't. I think things I shouldn't. I do things that I shouldn't. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God. Why? Because it was Christ Jesus who obeyed perfectly. It was Christ Jesus who prayed enough. It was Christ Jesus who interacted with the Father enough, who did enough good deeds, etc., etc. Christ is the one whose life that we look to because his life was perfection. 
Not yours. It's not yours. You you, you can't do it. And we know, see, we come to that realization. We know that we can't do it, and yet we beat ourselves up because we can't do it. You can't. And the fact that you keep trying and you keep uh, coming down on yourself so, so much is, a, is an insult. It's an insult because if God has saved you in spite of you, then you recognize that even the struggles that you have, oh Lord, I messed up again, but thanks be to you, you saved me in spite of me. Thank you, Lord, that not only are you in heaven mediating for me, but any good that I do is still tainted with evil. Thank you so much for the Spirit of God that you have given who perfects my prayers and who perfects my worship before you. Thank you for your continued work in my life because I can't do any of these things on my own. And that's where the sin that is still evident within our lives, that's why we turn it and then we we say to the Lord, Thank you. Oh, Lord, be praised. Thank you for for not leaving me in my sin, not leaving me in my despair, but giving me joy to know that Christ Jesus has fully and actually paid for my sins. Because that's the recognition. Every time that I mess up, I'm thinking, I'm still struggling. And Christ paid the penalty. And he still loves me. Oh, Lord, help me to overcome. Let my life be a continual sacrifice of praise to you because of how gracious that you are to me. Let me not think so little of your grace because I keep, I keep pointing at myself and I keep looking at myself instead of looking to you and your grace. Because that's what happens when you continue to look at yourself and you look at your own conduct. One, you don't have any assurance of salvation because you're looking at the wrong thing. Because the object of our salvation, the sum total of the gospel, is Christ, who He is and what He did. That's where you need to look. And when you look at yourself, no joy, no assurance, no appreciation for the grace of God because you keep thinking that you should be doing better. And here's the reality. We know we should be doing better. And one day, we will do it perfectly. And that's why we long for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of Christ. Because... That day will come. In the meantime, we struggle. We, we, we try to overcome. But we never lose sight of where our assurance lies. Which is in Christ Jesus. And so we reject antinomianism. Which cheapens the grace of God. We reject the legalism. Which says that His grace is insufficient to save. We reject all of that. And we keep our eyes on this. I know what Christ did. According to the scriptures, I know that it was a full payment for sin. And I know the Spirit of God is working in me because I can look back in my life and I can see that He's brought me to this place here. I know that I have the desires to do right. I know that I have the the desire to call upon Christ in repentance every day because I recognize that He is holy and that He is altogether righteous and that He loves me and, and... That produces an even greater love in me for Him. I know God is working in me. So be joyful 
dear friends, in what you know God is doing. And stop looking at yourself. Because if you look at yourself, you're going to be disappointed. We're all going to be disappointed. That's why the scripture says, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Christ has delivered you from judgment. He's delivered you from the power of sin. He makes a way of escape. But even in our time of falling, he still lifts our countenance up to look at him and says, you're my possession. And I purchased you in spite of you. And I will perfect you. I've begun this work. I will perfect it. That's your hope. That's your joy. And that's your peace, dear friends. So don't cheapen the grace of God. Don't insult the grace of God by continually coming down on yourself. This isn't a self-help thing. I'm not saying be happy. I'm saying recognize who Christ has made you. Christ has made you from being a rebel and a sinner. And he has made you his own possession, as he says here in this passage. You're his own possession. You're bought with a price. You glorify God in your body based on what he has done. And you give him praise and recognition of all that he's done.